Chapter 18 of The False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 18 Dance Macabre. Trained in the old school of the dance, Lanyard was universed in that graceless scamper which today passes as the waltz with a generation largely too indolent or too inept afoot to learn to dance. His was that flowing waltz of melting rhythm, the waltz of yesterday, that dance of dances, to whose measures a civilization more sedate in its amusements, less jealous of its time, danced, flirted, loved, and broke its hearts into the swinging movement of that antiquated waltz lanyard fell without a qualm of doubt all ignorant as he was of his benighted ignorance and instantly with the ease and gracious assurance of a dancer born cecilia brooke adapted herself to his step and guidance with rare pliancy made her every movement exquisitely synchronous with his no need to lead her no need for more than the least of pressures upon her yielding waist no need for anything but absolute surrender to the magic of the moment effortless like creatures of the music adrift upon its sounding tides they circled the floor once twice and again before reluctantly lanyard brought himself to shatter the spell of that enchantment looking down with an apologetic smile he asked mademoiselle do you know you can be an excellent actress as if in resentment, the girl glanced upward sharply, with clouded eyes. So can most women in emergency. I mean, I have something serious to say. Nobody must guess your thoughts. She said simply, I will do my best. You must, you must appear quite charmed. Also, should you catch me smirking like an infatuated ninny, remember I am only doing my own indifferent best to act laughter trembled deliciously in her voice i promise faithfully to bear in mind your heartlessness i am an ass he enunciated with the humility of conviction but that can't be helped attend to me if you please and do not start this place turns out to be a nest of prussian spies i was brought here by a trick i understand the order as i may not leave alive playing her part so well as almost to embarrass Lanyard himself, the girl smiled daringly into his eyes. "'Because of that packet?' she breathed. "'Because of that, mademoiselle.' "'Where is it?' For an instant Lanyard lost countenance absolutely. Through sheer good fortune the girl was now dancing with face averted, her eyes so nearly touching his shoulder that it seemed to rest upon it nevertheless it was at cost of an heroic struggle that he fought down all signs of that shock with which he had been borne in upon him that he dared not assure the girl her packet was in safe hands if he had failed in his efforts to restore the thing to her that she might consign it as she saw fit and so discharge her personal trust till now lanyard had solaced himself with a hazy notion that she would in turn be comforted when she learned the document was in the keeping of her country's secret service impossible to tell her that his own act had rendered it impossible that act the outcome of willful trifling with his infirmity his itch for thieving of a sudden the pilfered necklace secreted in an inner pocket of his waistcoat above his heart seemed to have gained the weight of so much lead 
The hideous consciousness of the thing stung like the bite of live coals. This woman was in distress. He yearned to lighten her burden. He could do that with half a dozen words. His guilt prohibited. A thief. Now, indeed, the lone wolf tasted shame and realized its bitterness. Puzzled by his constraint, the girl's eyes again sought his, and warned in time by the movement of her head, he mustered impudence to meet their question with a look of tenderness that went with the role she suffered him to play. "'What is the matter?' "'I am ashamed that I have failed you.' "'Don't think of that. I know you did your best. Only tell me what became of it.' It was stolen. When I returned to my stateroom that night, I was held up and robbed. The thief shot at me, killed his confederate, decamped by way of the port. I pursued. Another aided him to overpower and cast me overboard. Yet you escaped. Strange she should seem more intrigued by that than concerned about her loss. I escaped, no matter how. You don't know who stole the packet? I don't recall the man among the passengers, but he may have been in one of the boats, a fellow of about my stature, with a flowing beard. He sketched broadly Ekstrom as he had seen him in the Stannis Street library. Her eyes quickened. One such escaped in our boat, the second steward. I think his name was Anderson. Doubtless the same. Then it is gone. For once in his acquaintance with her, that brave spirit seemed to falter. She became a burden, bereft for a little of all grace and spontaneity. He was constrained to swing her forcibly into time. Almost instantly she recollected herself, covered her lapse with a little laugh, innocent of any hint of its forced falsity, and showed him and the room as well a radiant countenance, all with such address and art that the incident might well have escaped notice otherwise have passed for a bit of natural by-play. Yet distress was too eloquent in the broken query. What am I to do? Heartsick, self-sick to boot, he essayed to suggest that she consult Colonel Stanistreet, but lacking so much effrontery, stammered and fell silent. Perhaps misinterpreting, she cried in quick contrition, I am forgetting. Forgive me. I should have said, What are you to do? He whipped his wits together. Look down, turn your face aside, smile. I have a plan, a desperate remedy, but the best I can contrive. When next the lift comes up, we must try to be near it. There is one row of tables which we must break through by main force. Leave that to me. Follow as I clear away. Go straight into the lift. If anything happens, run down the stairway on the left. The ground floor is two flights below. If I am any way detained, don't stop. Go on, get your wraps, take the first taxi you see, return directly to the Knickerbocker. I will telephone you later. If you live, she breathed, never fear for me. But if I do, do you imagine I could rest if I thought you had sacrificed yourself for me? You must not think that. I am far too selfish. That is not so, and I refuse positively to do as you wish, unless you tell me how I may communicate with you. Resigned to humor her, he recited his address, and the number of the house telephone, and when she had memorized both by iteration, resumed. Once outside, if anybody tries to hinder you, don't let them intimidate you into keeping quiet. But scream, scream at the top of your lungs. These beasts abominate a screaming woman. 
or any other undue noise. Not only will that frighten them off, but it will fetch the nearest policeman. The music ceased. She stood, flushed, smiling, adorably pretty, eyes star-like for him alone. We are not far from the lift now, she said, just audibly. But the door is shut. Hush, here comes the encore, once more around. They drifted again into that witching maze of melody and movement made one. You are silent, she said, after a little. Why? Lanyard answered with a warning pressure on her hand. The elevator was stationary at the floor, its door wide. The maitre d'hôtel, engaged in a far quarter of the room, while those four formidable guardians of the exit were gossiping with animation over their glasses. Steady. Now is our time. Abruptly they stopped. A couple that had been following them avoided collision by a close margin. Over his partner's head the man scowled portentously, and dissipated his display of temper on Lanyard's indifferent back. Upon those guests who sat between the dancing floor and elevator, Lanyard wasted no consideration. Pushing roughly between two adjoining tables, he lifted one chair with its astonished occupant bodily out of the way, then turned, swung an arm round the girl's waist, all but threw her through the lane he had created, followed without an instant's pause. It was all so quickly accomplished that the girl was in the car before another person in the room appreciated what was happening and lanyard in the act of slamming the door shut without heed for the protesting operator saw only a room full of amazed faces with gaping mouths and rounded eyes and one man of the four at the nearby table in the act of rising uncertainly with a stupefied look elbowing the boy aside he seized the operating lever and thrust it to the notch labeled descend an instant of pause followed. Like its attendant, the elevator seemed stalled in inertia of stupefaction. Beyond the door, somebody loosed an infuriated screech. Angry hands drummed on the glass panel. With a premonitory shudder, the car started spasmodically, moved downward at first gently, then with greater speed, coming to an abrupt stop at the street level with a shock that all but threw its passengers from their feet. Up the shaft, that senseless punishment of the panel continued. Some other intelligence conceived the notion for ringing for the car to return. Its annunciator buzzed stridently, continuously. Unlatching the lower door, Lanyard threw it back, stepped out, finding the lobby deserted but for a simpering group of coat-room girls, to one of whom he flipped a silver dollar. Find this lady's wraps. Be quick. Deftly catching the coin, the girl snatched the check from Cecilia Brooke and darted into the women's dressing room. Throughout a wait of agonizing suspense, the elevator boy remained cowering in a corner of the car, staring at Lanyard as at some shape of terror, while the ignored buzzer droned without cessation to persistent pressure from above. Out of the dark entrance to the lower dining room, the bearded diplomatist popped with the distracted look of a jack-in-the-box about to be ravished of its young. "'Monsieur is not leaving,' he expostulated shrilly, darting forward. Lanyard stopped him with a look whose menace was like a kick. "'I am seeing this lady to her cab,' he said in a cold and level voice. The coat-room girl emerged from her lair with an armful of wraps and furs. Again, the bearded one made as if to block the doorway. But, monsieur, mademoiselle! Lanyard caught the fellow's arm and sent him spinning like a top. Out of the way, you rat! he snapped, 
than to the girl, be quick. As she shouldered into a compartment of the revolving door, incoherent yells began to echo down the staircase well. At length, it had occurred to those above to utilize that means of descent. Wedged in the wheeling door, a final glimpse of the lobby showed Lanyard the startled, putty-like mask of the maitre d'hôtel at the head of the stairway, with, beyond him, the head of one who, though in shadow, uncommonly resembled Ekstrom, but Ekstrom, as he was in the old days, without his beard. That picture passed like a flash on a cinema screen. They were on the sidewalk, and the girl was running toward a taxicab, the only vehicle of its sort in sight at the curb just above the entrance. Coatless and bareheaded, Lanyard swung to face the door porter, a towering, brawny animal in livery, self-confident and something more than keen to interfere, but his mouth opened to utter some sort of protest, shut suddenly without articulation when Lanyard displayed, for his benefit, a twenty-two Colts automatic. And he fell back, smartly. Jerking open the cab door, the girl stumbled into the far corner of the seat, the motor was churning in promising fashion, the chauffeur settling into place at the wheel. Into his hand, Lanyard thrust a ten-dollar bill. The Knickerbocker, he ordered. Stop for nobody. If followed, steer for the nearest policeman. There'll be no change. He closed the door sharply, leaned over it, dropped the little pistol into the girl's lap. Chances are you won't want that, but you may. She bent forward quickly eyes darkly lustrous with alarm, and placed a hand upon his arm. But you! It is I whom they want, not you. I won't subject you to the hazard of my company. Gently, Lanyard lifted the hand from his sleeve, brushed it gallantly with his lips, released it. Good night, he laughed, then stepped back, waved a hand to the chauffeur. Go! The taxicab shot away like a racing hound unleashed. With a sigh of relief, Lanyard gave himself wholly to the question of his own salvation. The rank of waiting motor-cars offered no hope. All but one were private town cars and limousines operated by liveried drivers. A solitary roadster at the head of the line tempted and was rejected, even though it had no guardian chauffeur, something of which he could not be sure. He would be overhauled before he could start the motor and get the knack of its gear-shift mechanism. Even now, Au Printemps was in frantic eruption, its doors ejecting violently a man at each wild revolution. Down Broadway, an omnibus of the Fifth Avenue line lumbered at no less speed than twenty miles an hour, without passengers and sporting an illuminated special sign above the driver's seat. Dashing out into the roadway, Lanyard launched himself at the narrow platform of the unwieldy vehicle and, in spite of a yell of warning from the guard, landed safely on the step and turned to repel boarders. But his maneuver had been executed too swiftly and unexpectedly. The group before Alprontan huddled together in ludicrous inaction as if stunned. Then one raged through it, plying vicious elbows. As he passed against the light, Lanyard identified unmistakably the silhouette of Ekstrom. So that one had, after all, escaped the net of his own treachery. The bus guard was shaking Lanyard's arm with an ungentle hand. Here now, you got no business, Borden Especial. From his pocket, Lanyard whipped the first banknote his fingers encountered. Divide that with the chauffeur, he said crisply. Tell him to drive like the devil. It's life or death with me. The protruding eyeballs of the guard bore witness to the magnitude of the bribe. 
"'You're on!' he breathed hoarsely, and ran forward through the body of the conveyance to advise the driver. Swarming up the curved stairway to the roof, Lanyard dropped into the rear seat, looking back. The group round the doorway was recovering from its stupefaction. Three struck off from it toward the line of waiting cars. Of these, the foremost was Ekstrom. Simultaneously, the bus lumbering drunkenly lurched into Columbus Circle, and the roaster left the curb, carrying, in addition to the driver's two passengers, Ekstrom on the running board. Tardily, Lanyard repeated of that impulse which had moved him to bestow his one weapon upon Cecilia Brooke. The night air had a biting edge. A chill rain had begun to drizzle down in minute globules of mist, which both lent each streetlight its individual nimbus of gold and dulled deceitfully the burnished asphaltum, rendering its surface greasy and treacherous. More than once, Lanyard feared lest the bus skid and overturn, and before the old red-brick building between Broadway and 8th Avenue shut out the western sector of the circle, he saw the roadster, driven insanely, shoot crabwise toward the curb, then answer desperate work at the wheel and whirl madly, executing a volta-face so violent that Ekstrom's hold was broken and he was hurled a dozen feet away and Lanyard's chances were measurably advanced by the delay required in order to pick up the sprawling one, start the engine anew, and turn more cautiously to resume the pursuit. Striking diagonally across Broadway, the bus swung into 57th Street at the moment when the roadster turned the corner of Columbus Circle. The head of the guard lifted above the edge of the roof. Clinging to the supports of the stairway, he addressed Lanyard in accents of blended suspicion and respect. "'Listen, boss,' Is this all right? On the level now? Absolutely, unless that racing car catches up with us, in which case you'll have a dead man, myself, on your hands. Well, we don't want to lose our jobs, that's all. You won't, unless I lose my life. Anything you'd like me to do? Go down, wait on the platform. If anybody attempts to get aboard, kick him in the act. Sure I will. The guard disappeared. Wallowing like a barge in a strong seaway, the omnibus crossed 7th Avenue and sped downhill toward 6th with dangerous momentum. Shortly, however, this began to be modified by the brakes, a precaution against mishap which even the fugitive must approve. Ahead loomed the gaunt structure of the 6th Avenue L, bridging the roadway at so low an elevation as to afford the omnibus little more than clear headroom. Once beneath it, a single bounce up from the surface car tracks must mean a wreck. But the pursuit was less than half a block astern and gaining swiftly, even as the speed of the omnibus was growing less and desperately less. At what seemed like better than a snail's pace, it began to pass beneath the span of the elevated. Like a racing thoroughbred, the roadster swept up alongside, motor chanting triumphantly, running board level with the platform step. Ekstrom poised to leap aboard, hesitated. A pistol in his hand exploded. A shattered window fell, crashing. There was a yell from the guard, not of pain, but of fright. Apparently, he executed a von Hindenburg retreat. Without more opposition, Ekstrom gained the platform. In the same breath, Lanyard stood up. The lowermost girder of the L was immediately overhead. He grasped it, doubled his legs beneath him, swung clear. The omnibus shot from under him, the roadster convoying. 
Drawing himself up, he seized a round iron upright of guard rail and heaved his body in over the edge of the platform round the switching tower, which was at this hour dark and untenanted. In the street below, a police whistle shrieked, and a fusillade of pistol shots woke scandalized echoes. Bending almost double, Lanyard moved rapidly northward on the footway beside the western tracks, and so gained the old station on the west side of 58th Street, for years dedicated to the uses of desuetude. Through this he crept, then down the stairs, encountering at the lower landing an iron gate which obliged him to climb over and jump. Not a soul paid the least attention to this matter of gentlemen in evening dress, without hat or topcoat, dropping from the stairway of a disused elevated station at two o'clock in the morning. In New York, anything can happen, and most things do, without stirring up meddlesome impulses in innocent bystanders. End of chapter 18. Recording by William Tomko.